God says that personal sin is that which causes death. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV on this Monday, going through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Thank you for joining us. And today we continue in the book of Ezekiel. We are focusing on chapter 18. We're going to do that in about five minutes. And that's going to be very, very interesting. Okay, Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? Well, today I'm going to be taking a look at a little bit of a biblical and historical biography of the man, Ezekiel, right? Well, today my segment deals with the specific cult that the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel were coming against. All right, very good. That's coming up in about 17 minutes time. Janice, what did you do? Personal responsibility. All right, that's coming up in about 21 minutes time. Now, this is important. Get your Bible out. That's the most important book of all. And get your Bible guide if you don't know how to get one. Stay there, we'll tell you how. Ezekiel 18, 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes? and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 13. Ezekiel chapter 18, 19, and chapter 20. This is really good as we continue to focus on going through God's word. What does it mean to be innocent? Now, most believe that the law of the land is the only law that we must obey in order to be innocent. But if we're Christian, then our concern is to become obedient to the law of Christ. 
and his love through faith. The law of Christ is different than the civil laws and the Mosaic law. They're higher and better. You're not innocent before proving guilty. We are all guilty of sin. And only God can truly absolve our spiritual crimes against him. It is also not about sacred rituals and spaces to demonstrate that our sinful separation from the presence of God, the temple, the veil will be torn. It is about the presence of God being inside of us. We are the temple of God, you and me. No longer do we need sacrificial animals to die for our sins. We are the new living sacrifice, Romans 12, set apart to do his will. He does so through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, John 14. Our sins are washed and cleansed by God, praise the Lord Jesus. And in Ezekiel 18, God demanded that the people stop reciting a false proverb. It did not convey the truth of God's character and conduct. The people reciting it thought themselves to be completely innocent. But the truth is that Israel had no more excuses. The children could no longer say that their fathers had called them to sin. They needed to make personal responsibility for their own sin. And that's something that we as humans don't like, bearing our own guilt. But if we take responsibility, we will be innocent in the eyes of God as we come to Jesus Christ and allow him to be the Lord of our life. Now, that's the fact of the matter. That's the truth. That's the way it is. Because responsibility for our sin is important. Every single person, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's whoever it is, when they pray for Israel, they say, Father, forgive us, we have sinned. They take responsibility. And we need to take responsibility today as the church for our nations and for our country and for our people. This is very important. Now take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage and we'll demonstrate this. If you don't have a Bible guide, call us or write to us. We'll send you one. Also go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. You can get a Bible guide just exactly like we printed it. Go there and get it. But let's open up the Bible and talk about the innocent or guilty. Father, I pray today as we concentrate on what you've told us, we are tempted to do ourselves what we want to do. But Lord, we need to understand that you have called us as Christians. I'm talking to Christians, Lord. I'm praying for the Christians. You've called us to be different. You've called us to take responsibility and you've called us to come to you for the sin. And we pray, Father, in Jesus' name that you would help us to do so. Help us to hear your spirit. And we said together, amen. It's important to remember this verse as we begin to start in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, this is Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, well, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. 
The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, God says that sin is a personal. It's personal. Sin is, it's you and me. It's personal. And the cause is death. We must remember that our sin is the reason for faults and failures, not God's sins, and certainly not our father's sins and our forefather's sins and our fathers that they make statues of before us. It's not their sin either. We have personal sins, and we have to be responsible for them. Are you responsible for your sins? Because if you are, you come to the place where you know you can't do anything about it. And when you can't do anything about it, you say, there's nothing I can do. That's when you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ has said to you, I will forgive you of your sin. I will make you righteous and you will not die. You will come to me. So you pray and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I come to you. Be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. That's how you do it. That's exactly how God does it. Well, let's go on. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse five. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one, by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. If he has not exacted usury or taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Now, this is important. To live one's life to follow God brings life. To live one's life to follow God, this brings life. We must live to follow the Lord, who, by the way, forgives, who heals, who gives us eternal life. Now, we can't say we're going to do all these things and do it because it's not us. It's the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we repent to Jesus Christ and come to him. The Holy Spirit helps us and lives inside of us. And so we begin to modify our life. And the further we go, the closer we get to God. And I mean closer, not just in presence, but closer in likeness. Likeness. Very interesting. Ezekiel chapter 18, three verses here, beginning with verse 10. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and the needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted up his eyes to idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, he shall then live. Shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Point number three, a man who willfully sins will die for his own actions. His own actions. We must turn to God in repentance and faith. He is faithful 
and just to forgive us of our sins. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study. And today's segment is actually a continuation of yesterday's study in which we attempted to identify the false God the Israelite women were worshiping and mourning called Tamas. And in today's segment, we identify an apparent connection to this. And we find this connection in the book of Jeremiah. It looks like both Jeremiah and Ezekiel were dealing with this false cult, which had ensnared God's people. The Queen of Heaven is a title that occurs only five times in the entire Bible, and it is found exclusively in the book of Jeremiah. In all of these passages, Jeremiah is upbraiding the people of Judah for worshiping her rather than the true God. In fact, entire families, including mothers, fathers, and even children, participated in these worship rituals. Not only did worship of her include cult prostitution, but the Judean women even dared to make cakes stamped with her image as offerings. While it is impossible to identify this false goddess with absolute certainty, some scholars contend that the best candidate is Ishtar, called the Lady of Heaven, the Assyrio-Babylonian goddess of love, fertility, and war. This is scripturally and historically possible, because as one scholar points out, there certainly was Mesopotamian influence in the worship practices of Judah, particularly from the time of King Ahaz until the reign of King Zedekiah. In fact, even after this time, we find in the book of Ezekiel, Jewish women at the temple of God, worshiping and mourning for Ishtar's lover, Tamaz, the god of vegetation. Additionally, the Hebrew word for the cakes that the women made seems to come from an Akkadian word referring to a sweet pastry, which was offered to the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar. Still, identifying this goddess isn't so clear-cut. Other possible identifications for this false deity include Canaanite goddesses such as Anath and Asherah, the latter of whom definitely seems to have been worshipped in Israel according to archaeological discoveries. This confusion over her name is not surprising, considering that as Lady of the Lands, she was revered throughout the ancient Near East, and was called by various names depending on the region. Despite her many different names, however, this goddess always appears to be connected with the heavenly bodies, and specifically the moon. As a matter of fact, the original language itself seems to suggest this, as the Hebrew word used in the Masoretic text isn't the normal word for queen. Others, including the translators of the Septuagint, understood this word to mean handiwork. Thus, the Queen of Heaven would be, quote, the Army of Heaven. Similarly, the Aramaic Targum translates this title as simply stars. Several Bible commentators also identify the Queen of Heaven with the moon, including Matthew Henry. The worshipping of the moon, he says, was much in use among the heathen nations. We remember here Abraham's own father, Terah. In fact, the whole celestial globe with all its ornaments and powers was the object of their adoration. 
Sadly, in direct violation of God's commands, his people worshipped the host of heaven rather than the Lord of hosts. You know, what's so unfortunate is that this sort of false worship is still going on today. As scholar Paula Reinhardt notes, in recent times, a renewed interest in paganism has arisen among many women. Focus has been placed upon such ancient goddesses as Gaia, the earth goddess, and Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. Some women's organizations, even within the church, are introducing women to goddesses and pagan elements of worship and theology. You know, it's absolutely critical that Christians guard their hearts and minds against these influences. Just like the ancient Israelites, people think that these so-called gods and goddesses can offer them good things. But as God reminds his people in many places in scripture, every good thing comes from him. Furthermore, these false gods cannot save you. Only the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, can save you. So we need to worship and focus on him and him alone. It's really important here to identify the fact that some people have used climate control as a religion and they believe in worship of the climate gods. The Bible speaks about this in Matthew 24. And all climate is controlled by God. And it's God who saves us. It's God who helps us. It's God who does these things. We need to keep that in mind. Very, very important. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one. Okay, Corey. All right, today you and I are going to be focusing in on Ezekiel because we are reading through his prophecies. So what can we know about Ezekiel the priest and the prophet. Who was he? When did he live? Uh, what was going on in the world around him that, you know, inspired God to speak these prophecies through him? Take a look. The prophet Ezekiel has left us with 48 chapters of his authored prophecies in the book of Ezekiel. This biblical book contains visions, prophetic actions, divine intervention, and direct specific dated prophecies. It seems that for Ezekiel, it was important that future generations would be able to look back at his prophecies, know when he gave them, and therefore know by their fulfillment that God's word was true. Amazingly, thanks to excavated Babylonian records, very precise dates for these dated messages and even events in Ezekiel's life are known. For example, we're able to know from the scriptures that Ezekiel was a part of the wave of exiles that traveled to Babylon shortly after the reign of Jehoiakim, who had rebelled as a vassal king against Babylon. When Jehoiakim died, his 18-year-old son Jehoiachin was left with the aftermath of an invading Babylonian army. He surrendered and went into exile along with a large number of Judeans. In Jehoiachin's stead, Babylon appointed Zedekiah as the next and, turns out, final king of Judah. This wave of Babylonian exile occurred in 597 BC, a full 10 years before the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was called as a prophet four years after going into exile in 593 BC. More specifically, it was likely July 13th, 593 BC. And then a large chunk of Ezekiel's prophecies from chapters 1 to 24 deal with the impending doom of Jerusalem, the temple, and Judah as a whole. We're told that beyond Ezekiel being called as a prophet of God, he was also a priest from the line of Zadok, which goes a long way in explaining why he was one of the more upper-class Judeans that was exiled first. 
It also seems very appropriate that God would use a priest to both announce the decommissioning of the temple in Jerusalem and foretell of its future recommissioning. Today, there are many different interpretations of Ezekiel's later prophecies. For our reference, the first 24 chapters deal with the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem, typified in the destruction of the temple. Then chapters 25 to 32 deal with judgments against various foreign nations. And then the remaining chapters, 33 to 48, all deal with the future hope of Jerusalem, its restoration as God's city and temple bearer. The various interpretations of Ezekiel's visions generally concern his apocalyptic passages and passages that deal with a restored Jerusalem and Israel. However, it's important to first take away the general message. Though God judges, there will also be a restoration. God's ultimately victorious over evil. Righteousness will prevail and he will dwell with his people. There we go. A bit of a study, a, a bit of a history and a historical look at the book of Ezekiel. I think, honestly, to me, one of the coolest things is the dating of Ezekiel's prophecies and, and, and being able to compare those with Babylonian records to arrive at rather precise dates. It's so neat to me. Maybe it's just the history nerd in me, but... I, you gotta love a good solid date coming from the pages from the Old Testament. I'm sorry, it just okay. did. Thank you, Corey. That was excellent. Very good. Uh, when we focus on this, Janice, what did you come up with? Well, you know, Rob, we're taking a look at this chapter that it's a false proverb in here that God's people were reciting. And it really was displaying the wrong character of God that uh, he would hold you accountable for the sins of your father. And what we're learning in this chapter, and, and as we know through throughout the Bible, we know that sin is a personal responsibility. We have to take personal responsibility for the way that we live our life. And we will be accountable for that, each of us personally. I know your dad used to say that God has no grandchildren meaning that we are not a Christian just because our parents went to church or because, you know, they were following God. It's not something that we're born with. It's a decision that we make in the same way that Jesus asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And they gave answers like, well, they think you're Elijah. They think you're one of the prophets. They think this, they think that. And Jesus brought it right down and made it more personal, didn't he? And he said, but who do you say that I am? God says the same thing to each one of us today. Who do you say that I am? And that's something that we need to answer. So there is this personal responsibility that we have to answer God, to make that decision in our heart, whether we believe that God is who he says he is or not. We choose to give him our life, to follow him, or we don't. In those decisions, it affects not only us. I wish that it did, but it doesn't. It has great impact, especially on our children. We can see that our sins that will have an influence on our children's lifestyle choices. You know, we can tell our kids do this, do this, do this. But if they see us doing the things that we tell them not to, what does that say? Right? So it's, it's a very sobering thought. 
We need to watch how we live. We need to teach our children about the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, because we are in the Old Testament, there was a, an excellent passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9. You've heard us quote it before, but listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Is that what you have chosen for your life today? Then listen to the rest of the instructions. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, everywhere you go, every, everything that you do, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, everything that you do, everything that you touch, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, everything that you see. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, teaching them diligently to your children, living them out, teaching it so that they can have it in their hearts when they see their parents diligently seeking the Lord, asking the Lord for his help in life situations, following his word, praying. How many of us remember hearing our grandparents or hearing our parents praying? And that has such an impact on who we are, that humble attitude that we have towards our loving Heavenly Father. This is what we need to do. Our personal choices, our personal responsibilities has a ripple effect. We need to be responsible of how we live our lives, following the Lord Jesus Christ, spending time in prayer, spending time in his word, asking his Holy Spirit to help us. And when we do that, we have a positive effect on our children. We have a positive effect on our spouse. We have an effect on our community, on our co-workers. Do you see that ripple effect? And that's the way we are supposed to live. We are supposed to be the salt and the light of this world. We are supposed to be a reflection of the Lord Jesus. It's a, a very sobering thought, but a beautiful one. So let's take all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and aim it at the Lord Jesus Christ. Aim it in His Word and help us to change who we are. Remember, Rumble is the great place where you can see us, our programs and our 24-7 channel, uh, the Bible Discovery Family and Friends channel. I, I want to encourage you to join us there in Rumble. In the meantime, let's pray. Lord, I ask your forgiveness of my personal sins and help me, Lord, by being the Lord of my life. Because I know, Father, when Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, I also have the receiving gift of the Holy Spirit. And he helps me change. So help me to change, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.